Well, hey, it's good to have you here this morning. My name is Justin. I'm the lead pastor here, and it's just good to gather together. Like I said, uh, if this is your first time here, we'd love to get to know you and meet you and connect with you and help you get plugged in here at Sojourn. Uh, We preach from the Bible every week here at Sojourn, and so if you need a Bible this morning, if you just raise your hand and somebody will find you so they can uh, hand you a Bible so that you can read along with us today and know that those are always there for you if you don't actually own a Bible uh, to be able to take that home as a gift so that you can read God's word. You know, the foundation of a building is a critical part of the structure. It enables the building to stay standing as you build up from the ground to be able to do that. And one of the most, I think, crazy looking buildings, one of the biggest buildings that we maybe are familiar with is the new One World Trade Center in New York City. It's quite a building to look at. It towers to 1,776 feet and the foundation of this building, though, is 70 feet deep. That's like putting a seven-story building underground in order to build this huge building above ground. I think that's crazy. 70 feet deep, the foundation goes down into the ground to allow this huge building to tower over New York City. And the crazy thing about it is that there's buildings all around the world that are uh, bigger, that have deeper foundations than 70 feet, may go to 100 feet deep and things like that. These deep foundations to, just, to support the structure. But the reality is, no matter what, if the building is big, it's going to have a significant foundation to support the weight of the structure. The foundation is absolutely critical for the structure of the building to stand. Well, today we're going to be back in Genesis chapter 15, and we're going to look at a key verse that provides a deep, deep foundation for the soaring heights of the gospel. And if we miss the truth that's communicated through God's word to us this morning that comes out of Genesis 15, specifically verse 6, the structure of our belief will quickly crumble. Everything we believe. Everything we believe about being reconciled to God rests on the truth that's contained in this verse. And so that's pretty significant. So we want to take time this morning to slow down and to look at it, to be encouraged, to be led to worship, to be challenged in our belief, to be empowered for mission and to give glory to God. So let's pray this morning as we open up God's word to us. Father, we are grateful that we can come together once again. We're grateful for the ability to do that, that you have formed this church here in Fairfax, planted it and are watering it and seeing growth take place in people's lives. And so we give you praise for that this morning. And Lord, as we open up to your text, to your word this morning, I pray that as we look at it, that you would help us to realize the significance of the fact that the reason that we're even here this morning as a church is because of the truth that's in this verse. Lord, help us to just be refreshed in this if this is something we already know. Help us to be radically transformed and changed if it's something we thought we know but haven't believed. Or if it's just new information to us this morning, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our lives. And Lord, we want to honor you with everything that we do. And so we pray this morning that you would be honored in our time in your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll go ahead and open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 15. And we are going to read a few verses in chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. 
But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now, we need to remember a bit about what is going on so far in Genesis, what's going on with Abram, this man Abram. God has called Abram to leave his home, to go to a land that God says he will show to him, to make him a great nation and to bless all nations through him. And Abram, in faith, forsakes and follows God, trusting in his word. But as we looked at last week, we see there's some bumps along the way. And we get to this place of crisis. And, and Abram's essentially saying, Lord, you, you promised these things. You promised to bless me, to bless me with a child, but we remain childless. You promised to bless me with a place, a home, but we remain homeless. What are you doing? And God, in his graciousness and patience and faithfulness, says to him, I do care and I will do it. He brings Abram outside and said, look up at the stars of the heaven, the ones that I have made, that I have placed there. I will give you a child. It will be your own son and your descendants will be innumerable like the stars in the sky. God says, I will do this work. I will. And you cannot do it, Abram. And that's the point. We've seen the faithfulness of God. We've seen the mightiness of God. We've seen the grace of God as we've walked through the beginnings of Genesis so far. But then we get to verse 6. And verse 6 says, And he, meaning Abram, believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Now we can read this verse and we can gloss over it, not really stopping to think about what's being said, what's being communicated to us, what bearing it has on our life. But if we do slow down, if we take time to really think about what's being communicated in this one verse in all of Scripture, there's some questions that we need to ask, and there's some answers that we need to find, and the answers that come out of these questions will dramatically impact your life both here and now and for all eternity. So it's worth stopping and asking and looking at it. Two questions that emerge out of looking at verse 6 is, what does it mean to be righteous And what does it mean that faith is counted to Abram as righteousness? Now, one of the best ways that we can interpret Scripture, if we want to understand Scripture, is to look at Scripture. Scripture is its own best commentary. And so if we want to understand the text of Scripture, we see and believe that all of Scripture goes together. And so we can look at other places to help us understand what God's Word is communicating to us. And by God's grace, we have a lengthy commentary on Genesis 15, 6 in the book of Romans. And so for actually for the rest of our time, what we're going to do is we're going to spend most of it in the book of Romans to help us understand what's being said in Genesis. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3 and 4 to see the truth that arises out of this. So go ahead and flip over to Romans 3 and 4 in your Bible because that's where we're going to camp out for the rest of our time together. As you're flipping there... It's good for you to know, it's good for us to be reminded that the book of Romans is a monumental book. It is a book that drips with the gospel. 
So if you want to grow in your relationship with Christ, if you want to grow in your love for Christ and your understanding of the gospel, then I would encourage you to spend time in the book of Romans. And don't just read through it quickly. Spend time allowing it just to meditate, meditate on it and to soak into your mind and your heart. It's worth your time. So Genesis fifteen six says that Abram believed God. He had faith. And God counted that faith to Abram as righteousness. So what does it mean to be righteous? To give kind of a definition to righteous, we could say that to be righteous before God is to be a person who follows the law of God. Follows his word and his commands. To be righteous is to worship God alone. To give glory to God alone. To be righteous is to stand complete before God in perfect obedience. To be righteous is to be blameless without sin. Because God is completely holy and perfect and righteous himself. He can only be in a relationship with image bearers of his that he's created that are also holy, perfect, and righteous. But there's a problem. All people are unrighteous because all people have rebelled against God. Instead of walking in obedience and worship to God, we've turned away from him. Romans chapter 3. Look at Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. The apostle Paul writes this, For we have already charged that all, all, both Jews and Greeks, meaning all people, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. We jump down a few verses to verse 23 of chapter 3. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Man was created in the image of God. Man was created in the image of God for a purpose, and that was to advance the glory of God. To take the glory of God, advance it all around his created world. To advance that, to give glory and honor and praise to him. But instead of being glory advancers, man became glory stealers. He said, I want this for myself. I want the glory to be about me. And so we fall short of God's glory because we steal it for ourselves, for our own glory. In order for any person to be in a right relationship with God, they must be righteous. But scripture tells us no one is righteous. This is true for Abram. This is true for you and for me. And that is a problem. But it's not the end of the story. We pick back up in Romans chapter 4. We see that Paul focuses in on Abram or Abraham as he's later called as we saw last week. In verse 1 through 3, Paul writes this. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? And here's our verse. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. For a person to be justified, and the word justified is a legal term. It means justice has been served for someone to be declared justified by a just God. That means that they are declared before holy God to be in a right standing relationship in perfect obedience to him without sin. They're declared to be righteous. It's what we all need. If we want to be in relationship with God, we need to be righteous. So Paul is saying if Abraham was justified, if he was declared righteous before God by his own works, by his own effort, by his own doing, that would be a big thing to boast about. 
That'd be a huge thing to boast about, that we could remedy our situation by just doing some good things. But the reality for Abraham, Paul says, is that he was not declared right before God because of his works, not because of his obedience, not because of what he did, but because he believed God. And when he believed God, it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this phrase, to be counted as righteous, that's used in Genesis 15, that's used here in Romans, it's an accounting term. It's saying that your account has been credited with righteousness. Your account had no righteousness in it, but righteousness was deposited into your account. It's been given to you. It's been reckoned to you. And to use a fancy theological term, it's been imputed to you. But the key thing to see right now is, is that God has done this. God is the one that counted it to Abram as righteousness. Abram brought nothing to the table. He had a zero balance account. In fact, it was in the negative. He had nothing that he could bring to the table. God credits righteousness to him. Now, Paul wants to help us understand this a bit more. And so he begins to elaborate on his point here in these first few verses. And he uses an illustration to do this. And that's helpful for us to understand. Verse 4, he says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. If you walk into work tomorrow morning... And you're sitting at your desk and your boss comes into your office or to your cube or wherever it is that you work, your classroom. And, and your boss says to you, man, I've got a special financial gift for you. I, I have a special financial gift for you that I want to give to you. I mean, you might get really excited. I mean, it's not time for a bonus. This is just a, a, an, an extra financial gift. I'm not sure why my boss is doing this, but he says he's going to give me this financial gift. And maybe your mind begins to, to go fast and, and you're thinking about, man, I, I could use some extra cash for this or that or, or something else. And he, he hands you an envelope and an, an excitement and anticipation. You open it up and it's, it's your paycheck. The one you've earned. For doing the work that you said you were going to do, that's all that it is. You'd be disappointed. Because what he made it sound like is that you were going to get a gift, something you didn't deserve. But in fact, it wasn't a gift at all. You worked for it. If Abraham or you or me are made right with God because of work that you could do, then you would have room for boasting in yourself. This verse instead would read, Abraham did good works, and so God declared him righteous. Not a gift, just a fact. But that's not what Genesis 15, 6 says. It says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. God counted it to him as righteousness. God declared Abraham righteous, not because of anything he did. And that means it's a gift, and that's Paul's point. This is given to you by God. Paul continues on in verse 5, just to drive this home for us. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Romans 4, verse 5 is a scandalous verse. In our society, the idea of someone not working, but still receiving something good in our minds is unfair. We chalk it up to laziness or to welfare or to leniency. But right here, Paul says as clear as day, the one who does not work, doesn't do anything 
but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, who declares people right. His faith is counted to him as righteousness. God alone does this work. And get this, it says that he saves the ungodly. The ungodly, not someone who's seeking after God, not someone who is trying to do good things to earn favor with God. The ungodly. Abraham is an example of this. We could go back to Genesis chapter 11 and chapter 12 and see that Abram is not looking for God. He's living in a pagan land, worshiping false gods, and God pursues him and calls him to himself. This verse is even more scandalous. This truth is even more scandalous, even more paradoxical if we think about the fact That God declares unrighteous people righteous while they're practicing unrighteousness. It's in the midst of your unrighteousness that God saves you by faith. That's crazy. That's insane. We don't operate like that in any other sphere of society. But it says the one who does not work but believes in the God who justifies, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now, someone might say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. If we're going to look at Abraham here and we see that Abraham's already done a lot of stuff. So maybe that's the reason God counts his obedience as righteousness. He's been doing good things, obeying God and his word. That's why he's declared and counted righteous. Or, or maybe it's because he's been walking in obedience to God's commands. That's why he's declared and counted righteous. We could say that, but that's not what scripture says. That's what Paul's point is in these next few verses in Romans chapter 4. We don't have time to really dig into them. But verses 9 through 15, what he's trying to communicate is, is that Abram didn't do religious activity to earn righteousness. An activity like circumcision did not grant righteousness to Abraham. He, in fact, was declared right before he was circumcised. Abraham didn't follow the law of God to be declared right before God. Because the law hadn't even been given yet. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now Paul says something critical here. Verse 16 of chapter 4. That is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring. We've talked about this before, that Abram's promise, God's promise to him is that he would be blessed to be a blessing to all the nations. And we now, if we are, if we are children of Abraham, then not by birth, not by heritage, not by doing good things, not by living obedient lives, or even believing in the God of Abraham. We are children of Abraham if we have faith like Abraham. And Abraham's faith rested on the grace of God. I mean, this insane promise that's been given to Abraham by God, Abraham believes it, not because of what the promise was in and of itself, but because he trusted the one who made it. Verse 17 says, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. That's the God that Abraham believes to be faithful. Abraham says, look, I... You're the God who called everything out of nothing, who brought light into darkness, who brings life to people who are dead. I believe you. But see, all of this is not a free handout. Abraham had faith, and it was credited to him, counted to him as righteousness. He was justified before God. But like we said, in order for righteousness to be credited to him, it had to come from somewhere. I can't go into my checkbook 
or my bank account or my spreadsheet and say, you know what, I would love some extra money in my account, so I'll just add my own zeros to it. It doesn't work that way. It has to come from somewhere. If you're going to be a good accountant, I mean, again, we said counted and credited are accounting terms, and accounting requires precision. It requires specificity. An accountant has to be 100% right in their calculations, or he or she is not a good accountant. The numbers have to add up to what is actually true. So for God to credit righteousness to Abraham, his unrighteousness must be dealt with. God can't say, okay, you're good, don't worry about it. I'll just brush over the fact that you have a negative balance in your account. I'll ignore your sin. I'll ignore your rebellion. A person cannot be legally justified before God without the sin and rebellion in his or her life being dealt with. But Abraham is saved from his sin. He's declared righteous. And the reason is, is because he placed his faith in God to receive another's righteousness. Righteousness has to come from somewhere. Paul's already made the argument, but no one is righteous. So what are we to do? Are we at a loss? Well, scripture makes it clear that that's not the case. If you go back earlier in Romans chapter three, verses 22 through 26, man, if you, if you want to memorize scripture, you should memorize these verses. This is the gospel for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and all are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. We are justified by his grace as a gift and God himself put Christ forward. And this word here, propitiation, means that Christ was the wrath bearer. He bore God's wrath for the sin of humanity on his back and we now can receive that gift by faith. God in his righteousness and forbearance, he says, passed over sins formerly committed, over Abram's sins, waiting for Christ to make atonement for sin so that God might be both just and the justifier of all who place their faith in Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, another verse that we should know and come back to over and over and over again. Paul writes this, for our sake, he made him, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Abraham believed the gospel. Abraham, that's what his faith was in, was in God and his gospel. Paul told us in Galatians chapter 3 that the gospel was preached to Abram beforehand. He needed God's grace. He needed another's righteousness that would only come through a redeemer that God would have to sin. Now, he obviously did not understand the coming of Christ in the way that we do. But just as Abraham looked forward to Christ, we now look backward to Christ. It's Christ from beginning to end. For Abraham, it is Jesus who saves. For you and for me, it's Jesus who saves. That's the beauty of the gospel. The beauty of the gospel is that we get Christ's righteousness and he gets our sin. 
It's an exchange that takes place. Christ's righteousness is what's deposited into our account. And we are zeroed out. Our sin is taken away from us. And Christ takes that on. And we, like Abraham then, place our faith, when we place our faith, in this truth. To be reconciled to God, we are forgiven and declared right before God. Because now, when God looks at Abraham, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. Christ paid for that. He looks at you and he sees Christ's righteousness. You're clothed in that now. Man, it's crazy to think about. You and I, Abraham, are utterly sinful. We are rebellious people, false worshipers, glory stealers. And for all of that, we deserve death. But praise God, his free, unmerited gift is eternal life to you in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Righteousness is not obtained or maintained by working for God, but by believing God who says he will work for us to, un- to justify the ungodly. The righteousness that God demands from us, he has given to us. I mean, that's crazy to think about. God demands perfect obedience. He demands righteousness from you and from me. But the good news, he gives it to us through Christ. Man, that's amazing grace. So we are not saved because of our faith or on the basis of our faith, but through or by our faith. Faith is the channel of our salvation. It's like the chair that you're sitting on right now. Before you sat down in that chair, you had faith that that chair was going to hold you up. But it's not your faith that's holding you up right now. It's the chair that's holding you up right now. How can God be in relationship with wicked people, with false worshipers? How can he be called the friend of sinners? Because Jesus paid it all. Because Jesus took on the wrath that you deserve. Because Jesus gave you his righteousness. That's how you can be in a right relationship with God. That and that alone. Abraham was not saved by believing in God. Abraham was saved because he believed God. He believed that God alone could justify him and save him from his sin. As one pastor puts it, saving faith is not believing that God is there. Saving faith is not believing in a God who saves. It's believing God when he promises a way of salvation by grace. Now, this is not just some abstract truth to roll around in our brains. It's not just an interesting story about Abraham. This is for you and for me this morning. Paul makes that clear at the end of chapter 4 in the book of Romans. He says, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. You and I must trust in God as Savior, not self, not good works, not anything else. It must wholly be on Christ who died as a substitute for you and was raised to new life so that you might receive and be made alive, clothed in his righteousness alone. You understand, we never get our own righteousness. It's always Christ's righteousness. The only way for any person who ever has lived, is living, or will live to be reconciled to God, to be justified, to be declared declared right before God is by grace through Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection. 
Now, why does all this matter right here and now? Why does this matter for your life right here and right now? The reality is, is that if we miss this, we miss God. The structure of our belief will crumble if we miss this truth. If we gloss over it, if we skate past it. And I think the problem for many of us is either we don't believe this or we functionally don't believe it. We either reject the need for the gospel completely or we add to the gospel. A question that's asked by a pastor in doing evangelism, teaching people about evangelism. He asked this question that you can ask to people. Why and how are you permitted to spend eternity with God? He says most, most answers to that question come in three ways. Because I've tried to be a good person. Because I believe in God and try to do his will. Because I believe in God with all my heart. But the reality is, is that's all about you and none of that is about God's grace to you. It's religious activity, but it's someone who's doing work. When you say it's because I am being a good person, you're trying to earn salvation by your works. When you say it's because I believe in God and try to do his will, you're saying I believe by faith, but I add things to it, something that I have to do. The reason I can spend eternity with God, if you say it's because I believe in God with all my heart, then salvation now has become by faith as a work. But the reality is that you and I are only forgiven, reconciled, and restored to God, permitted to spend eternity with God only because Christ lived a perfect life of obedience. Because Christ died for you. Because Christ took the punishment for your sin and gave you his righteousness. That's the only way that anyone can stand in the presence of holy God for all eternity is because Jesus paid it all. Faith alone is leaning and trusting in Christ's work for you alone, nothing else. Abraham placed his faith in God that God would do what only God could do. God alone can save. He shifted his focus from a trust in self to a trust in God When you and I seek to trust in ourselves to make ourselves right with God, we negate the gospel of grace, and we can do it in so many different ways, subtly or overtly. We do good works, thinking, man, if I could just do more good works, then God will look on me favorably. I'll have a good relationship with God. If I just follow the rules, if I just seek to obey God, just do what his word says, that'll be the reason that God accepts me. That'll be the reason that I can be in an ongoing relationship with God. Man, I serve in the church. I do lots of ministry activity. I get here and I set up and I help out with kids and I, and I serve people and I am involved in ministry activity. That'll be what, what enables me to be close to God. That's what God desires for me. And so I need to do those things in order to be in an ongoing right relationship with God. Maybe it's knowledge. You think, well, I know a lot of theology. I read lots of theology books. I even read my Bible over and over again. I know lots of things about God. And because I know those things, that will make me in a right relationship with God. Or maybe even on the other side, we just flat out presume on God's grace. Thinking, well, yeah, God will save me from my sin. I believe that Jesus died for me, but I'm just going to go on and live my life however I want to live, kind of making my own rules to follow. But listen, you and I can never gain or maintain God's favor, grace, and gift of righteousness by what we do. It's by grace through faith alone, always, from beginning to end in your life. That never changes. 
And we need to be reminded of that over and over and over again because I think our tendency is to go one of two directions. To either pursue, presume on God's grace and continue to live for ourselves or to not depend on God's grace and seek to add to the gospel. I professed faith in Christ around the age of 11. Grew up going to church, being involved in the church. And I went off to college and God used that time in my life as a, as a huge growth point in helping me to understand what it meant to live my whole life devoted to following Jesus. But I honestly don't think that it was really until Amy and I moved to Louisville, Kentucky and spent two years there in seminary and were involved in a local church there that was preaching the gospel week in and week out that I really, really, really understood grace. I knew that it was by Christ alone that I was saved. I would preach that and proclaim that. I believed that. I trusted in Jesus. But I think I also subtly at the same time believe that in order to maintain favor with God, to continue to be in a favorable position with God, that I needed to keep trying to bring my own righteousness before him by doing certain things and not doing other things. But see, the radical, scandalous nature of grace is that God gives us himself for nothing in return. That should be scandalous to you. That should blow your mind. God gives us himself and demands nothing in return. That's what this is. Grace upon grace upon grace. Man, I understood this so much for the first time. I even have grace tattooed on my arm now. With a, with a picture of the city symbol of Louisville. Because I want to remember that it was in that time and that place God showed me and blew my mind with grace. It made me so nervous to hear about grace that much. But if we talk about grace that much, people are going to go off the deep end. Living for themselves, doing whatever they want. But that's not grace. Grace changes your life from the inside out. It transforms you. It's amazing. It's scandalous. Listen to these verses. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us. That we should be called children of God, and so we are. Romans 5, 8. God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has lavished his love on us by sending his Son to us to die for us, to rescue us, so that we could be called his children. He did it while we're rebelling, while we're sinning, while we're not righteous. The great love that God has given to us was not a one-time thing. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. That's what I needed to hear. It's not a one-time thing that happened at some point in your past. It's a one-time definitive action with continuing and lasting results in your life. We don't move on from it. We can't add to it. It's grace-saturated love from beginning to end. Sojourn, don't trust Christ for your salvation and then reject him by trying to add to what he's done. Don't trust Christ for your salvation and then reject him by how you live your life. Look to Christ and continue to look to Christ. Not to self, not to anything else. See, the reality of being counted righteous before God isn't fair. <laughs> it's not what you and I deserve. You and I and Abraham deserve to be eternally separated from God, to bear the righteous wrath of God for our rebellion forever. But that is the amazing thing about grace. Grace makes life not fair because we receive what we do not deserve. 
We receive life now and life forever with God only because of what Christ has done for us. The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, ungodly, his faith will be counted as righteousness. It's unending, unfathomable grace. Genesis 15, 6 and Romans 4 is so important. Not just as a truth to be believed, but the reality that shapes your life here and now. And to close out, I just want to give us two ways that, it, it, that it's good for us. And these are not exhaustive two ways. These are not the only ways this is good for you, but this is what... The Spirit has led me to share with you this morning this truth of by faith alone you are made righteous before God. It is good for your own soul. When we have a wrong view of how we are made right with God and how we stay right with God, how we're justified before him, if we think it's about being a good person or doing good things, it'll be crushing to your soul. It will crush you because you cannot maintain a righteousness of your own. And when you can't maintain a righteousness of your own, it'll lead to despair and anxiety, a lack of assurance and devastation in your life when you mess up. And when we're having a particularly good spiritual day, it'll lead to boasting and spiritual pride, stealing God's glory from him once again. But when we understand and rest in the truth that it is by faith alone that we are counted righteous, we experience freedom. The book of Galatians is written to a group of people who are adding it to the gospel. They know they've been made alive and reconciled to God by faith. But now as they continue to live their life, they're seeking to add things to that. Thinking there's something they have to do to maintain favor with God. And Paul writes this letter to him. And in Galatians 5.1, he says, For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Christ came to set you and me free from our self-righteousness. Because Jesus died for you, you were given his righteousness. You are now free from that. And that is freeing to our soul. When we mess up, when you mess up, when I mess up, and we will It doesn't have to be crushing because you know that your sin has been paid for, not in part, but in whole by by Jesus' blood shed for you. When you mess up, it's not crushing anymore because you know that when God looks at you now, he doesn't see your unrighteousness. He sees you clothed in Christ's righteousness. One author puts it this way. Your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. And your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. God's grace reaches to you in the worst of days. God's grace, you need it in the best of days from beginning to end. It's all about his grace. We've been washed clean. We are now clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And so now when we wake up in the morning, we should think of this truth. It should impact our whole day because no matter what comes our way, we know that we have been declared right before God because of Christ alone and nothing can change that. You and I need to understand that when we're declared right before God by grace, in, by faith in Christ alone, everything changes for you and for me. We receive a new heart. We have a new life. We are made a new creation. We are given a new identity. We follow a new Lord. If you know Christ, you can't go on in rebellion because Christ has captivated your heart. Let grace make you nervous this morning. (laughs) 
Rest in the scandalousness of it. And know that above all, we can now know and walk with the living God because we have peace with him. Paul starts the next chapter of Romans. He says, therefore, chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. It's grace that we stand in now. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because of that. If you're in Christ, this is who you are now. You have been liberated from the burden of spiritual maintenance and management. You've been set free to be who you are in Christ for God's glory and for your good. That is food for your soul. Feed that to your soul every day. And this truth is so good for that. But it's not only good for our soul, it's also good for our mission and evangelism. Righteousness comes by faith alone. And what that means is that all people are reconciled to God in the same way. There is nothing anyone can bring. It all comes through and by Christ alone. But what this also means is that there's no one that is too far gone to be forgiven and made new. It's never about your righteousness. It doesn't matter how much unrighteousness you have because what happens is you get Christ's righteousness. Sin is serious, but by Christ's blood, you are washed clean. So when we understand this truth, we should be compelled to go out and tell people about the free grace of God that comes in and through Jesus. We make sure based on this truth to tell people that it's Jesus plus nothing We go and tell people, come to Jesus. Come as you are to Jesus because his burden is easy and his yoke is light. In him alone you find rest for your weary soul. Empty-handed you come to Christ and empty-handed you remain before Christ because it's by grace alone. Sojourn, as we reflect on this truth today, we can respond in one of two ways today. We can respond in worship If you are in Christ, if your sin has been paid for and you have availed yourself of Christ's righteousness, then we should respond constantly and continually with praise. Ephesians chapter 2 reminds us that we were dead in our sin and trespasses under God's righteous wrath. But God in his grace sent his son to die for us. But we didn't figure it out. But we didn't figure that out on our own. Abraham didn't figure it out on our own. Even faith itself is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2 goes on to say, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And it's here that we, like Abraham, like Paul, realize there is no room for boasting because our faith is a work of God in us. Faith is a gift of grace. So today, let's respond in thankful praise for this amazing grace and allow that to be the posture of our heart every day of our life, that we would give praise and thanks to God that he has rescued us and redeemed us, our sin paid for in full, and now we receive this gift of righteousness. We can respond in worship, but we also, some of us need to respond in repentance and faith. Some of us need today to do that, to turn from our sin and turn to Christ, to trust in him alone. Look, faith is not, a general or, is not general or abstract. It's always based on a response to a concrete word of promise. And that word of promise to you this morning is that God sent his son to redeem. 
Faith is not a mere intellectual assent to belief in God or in Christ. It is a whole dependence on the person and work of Christ to save you. As another pastor says, faith is not believing the absurd or foolish. Faith is ultimately trusting what is preeminently trustworthy. See, Abraham looked to the one who made the promise and there was nothing hopeless about it because of who made it. And faith begins with a kind of death of self-trust and instead turning and trusting in the word of God. It's turning from sin and self-righteousness to the righteousness of God given to us in Christ. And so will you turn this morning? Will you turn away from seeking after sin and yourself and seeking to make yourself righteous and turn to God and fall on the righteousness of Jesus? You cannot heal yourself. You are dead in your sin. But God, in his grace, has brought healing to you through Christ. And can I also say this morning that maybe you've been calling yourself a follower of Christ for many years. Five years, ten years, fifteen, twenty, thirty years. I don't know how long. Maybe you've called yourself a Christian for a long time, but for your whole life it's been based on what you've done. It's been a mental ascent to truths doing religious activity, trying to do good things for God, but you've never truly and fully by faith trusted in Christ alone. Man, can I say to you this morning, if that's you, do not let your pride get in the way this morning of coming to Jesus. I don't care if you've called yourself a follower of Christ for 15 or 20 years. I don't want your pride to get in the way for you this morning to say, today is the day. That by faith alone, I trust in Christ's righteousness alone. Then if that's you, would you come to Christ today? Repent and believe in Christ today. Sojourn Genesis 15, 6 is one of the most important verses in the Old Testament, if not all of Scripture, because it is the beginning of our faith. It tells us of the deep foundations of the soaring heights of the gospel. Man, what an amazing truth that affects our life both now and forever. And let's praise God for that. There's a hymn that was written in the 18th century called Rock of Ages. And listen to this verse. The author writes, nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. As we come forward to the table this morning to take communion, may that be the posture of your heart and your life. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. We come to the table today taking the bread and the cup, knowing and believing that we can offer nothing. We can add nothing to what Christ has done for us. Without the cleansing blood of Jesus, we are dead. But if you're in Christ this morning, come quickly to the table this morning to eat the bread and to drink the cup. And may the cry of your heart this morning be rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let me hide myself in thee. Jesus has won. Come to him this morning. Rest in him this morning. And if you're not a follower of Christ, we would just ask you not to come forward to take communion. Because for us, this is a declaration that our only hope is in Jesus. And so we don't want you to come forward to take the bread and the cup because that does not save you. Jesus saves you. 
So if you haven't turned to trust in Christ, then we don't want you to take communion. We want you to take Christ this morning. Please come talk to someone afterwards about what that means and pray to God. Ask him to save you today. Call on Jesus today to save you. And those of you that will come forward, you can come forward when you're ready and tear off a piece of bread and take a small cup to drink. And what Jesus has done for you will be spoken over you today. Come forward whenever you're ready. Let's pray. Father, we praise your name for your word that is unified together from beginning to end. Lord, we thank you that What happens to Abraham back in Genesis some thousands of years ago is the same truth that Paul speaks about in Romans chapter 4. And it's the same truth that is still true for us today. It's not our righteousness, God. It's not anything we do. It's not faith plus anything else. It is faith which is wholly leaning on Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin And to clothe ourselves in his righteousness. Lord, that's something that you do. Just like a child has to be dressed, you dress us in the righteousness of Christ. Father, I pray today that you would call people to yourself that don't know you. Lord, I pray today that you would make it aware to people who think that they've known you for maybe many years. That maybe they don't know you. Maybe they've never trusted in you in the righteousness of Christ. You would call them to yourself today. And those of us that are dressed in Christ's righteousness, I pray that we'd be encouraged knowing that no bad day, no good day changes our standing before you, that we don't gain or maintain anything on our own. It is given to us by grace, through faith, in Christ alone. Lord, thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And as we continue Now, to celebrate that, I pray that we would just be drawn into a place of worship to give you all honor and praise and glory that is due your name. Lord, we love you. We thank you that you loved us enough to send your son to die for us. We pray this in his name. Amen.